The reading is taken from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 53. Jesus appears to the disciples. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, where do you want me, Howard? Wherever I like. Okay, shall I go in the garden room? Is that good? <laughs> Great to be with you, everyone. Congratulations, Matt and Sophie. I enjoyed Lydia's prostrate uh, position uh, here uh, uh, as she prepared for baptism, obviously seeking God's presence as she prepared for that significant spiritual moment, um, as I'm sure you would have done, Sophie. So, yeah, there we go. So that was, that was good. And uh, here we are at the end of our Better Than Sermon series. Although whether it's better than the last sermon series, I don't know. I've enjoyed both of them. It was great looking at Nehemiah, and it's been great looking at Luke's gospel uh, today. 
and, uh, well, this term. And we spent four months, actually, if you haven't been here and if you're a visitor today, looking at uh, Luke's gospel with a view to a better way, a better way of living, a better way of thinking, straight from the Creator's manual, offering hope and help to us all. And hopefully today's sermon will be no different as we seek to draw on Jesus' last words to his disciples. And I was just researching famous last words from uh, other people. And uh, my favorite one uh, was comedian Bob Hope, uh, who, whose last words were to his wife after she asked him where he wanted to be buried. And his answer was, surprise me. Which I rather like. I'm a big fan of Bob Hope, and I, I, think, I think that's a great thing if you can be that witty even at that point in your life. And uh, of course, uh, there was a lot that was surprising about Jesus' last words, and I'm sure you were struck by the contrast uh, that we saw in the disciples from the beginning to the end of that passage. And I love that. I love that movement, and I love the fact that actually this passage connects with us wherever we're at, and I'm conscious in this room, there will be people in many different places. But what do we see as the passage begins? We see debate and discussion. The passage tells us the gathered disciples were still talking about all that had happened, a clear sign of fluidity of views. We see doubt and disbelief, with the passage telling us they were startled and frightened. And Jesus speaks into that. And we see confusion and chaos, with no one yet seeming to see any, apart from Jesus, obviously, any divine providence behind what has happened or showing any real confidence about what will happen next. And yet by the end of the passage, as I've already said, the picture is utterly different. For Jesus does the one thing, let's be honest, that they must surely all have feared. He leaves them, this time permanently, at least in physical form. And yet in complete contrast to how they begin the passage, we leave them worshipping him and returning to Jerusalem with great joy, being told that they stayed continually at the temple praising God. What a turnaround that was. So clearly something had happened in the course of that passage that completely transformed how they acted and felt. So my job today is simple, to explain what it was and then to help unpack what difference it can make to us in our lives today. For here's the thing, we too will have a range of perspectives and emotions as we gather this morning Some will be in the doubting and discussing camp, which is totally understandable. Of course, others will be firmly in the worship and joy and ready to commit camp, which is great too. But Jesus has a heart for us all. He meets the disciples exactly where they're at here in this passage. And some of you will know, even with one disciple, Thomas, my namesake, who was particularly struggling with doubt, Jesus contrived circumstances to particularly engage with him at the end of John's gospel to give him the assurance that he needed. And all that means is that wherever you're at this morning, 
Jesus wants to meet with you. He understands where you're coming from. He wants to respond to that, to your situation, to your doubts or your challenges or whatever they might be, your hopes and your desires. And he left this passage as a gift to us to give each of us the pointers and the green shoots of confidence that we need. So let me pray for us all before I really get into the passage before us. Father God, thank you for these final words. Thank you for the effects that they had on the disciples. Lord, we pray they would have a similar effect on us. We would love to be joyful, worshipful, praising you, just bubbling up from inside of us. But we confess we don't all feel like that. So we pray that you would meet us, help us, move us, and as you see fit, change us. Amen. Okay, on with the sermon, and I've got three things that I want to pick out today. Uh, They all actually begin with P, so that should make them easy to remember. And the first seems to be what God most seems to think that we need, which is this, peace. For it's this word, all the words do not be afraid, that we see throughout the gospel, and particularly at the beginning, where the angels appeared to Zechariah, Mary, and the shepherds, We see it in Zechariah's prophecy at the beginning of Luke as well that Jesus will shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And here at the end, we see it again as Jesus gives us those very same words of reassurance. Peace be with you. Which tells us one of two things. Uh, Either he was a very good Anglican and fully anticipated the response and also with you, or more likely, (laughs) that he knows his supernatural peace is the essential starting point for the disciples. It's what they need so that they are then able to hear and absorb anything else he has to say. Right from the get-go, he needs to calm them down. And he needs just to reassure them that it's okay. And perhaps that's what he needs to do for us as well. And we'll pray for that by the end. For they are startled and frightened, as we've heard. Admittedly, let's be honest, partly because they thought they had seen a ghost. Similar reaction to what the angels got at most points where they appeared to people. But of course there were underlying reasons as well why the disciples had doubt and anxiety, just as there are for us. Now, what do they include for us in our situation? Well, perhaps the effects of trauma, which for many of us, the pandemic has effectively been, and perhaps there were other traumas in our lives too. There's the challenge of our own scepticism, which many of us have instinctively. There's the effect of our culture around us, which struggles to acknowledge anything beyond what we can see, however widespread spiritual experience in the population actually is. And of course, there's everything that's wrong with the world, whether that's the war in Ukraine, 
whether it's potential environmental catastrophe, whether it's a government paralyzed by the allegations of law-breaking and uh, the way that was responded to. Maybe it's the worst cost-of-living crisis since the 1970s, which most economists are telling us that we face. What might Jesus' words of peace mean for us in our context today? Well, let me start with briefly the political, the societal, before we drill down to the personal and spiritual, which I think is where Jesus' main emphasis lies. But I was struck by an article on Thursday that I think captured the yearning of much of the nation at this time. And I think I was struck by it because it was written by someone who, as far as I'm aware, is an atheist commentator, historically opposed to the mixing of politics and faith. But in this article, he described the complete turnaround that he had undergone under the heading, we need more religion in politics, not less. Interesting. The gist of his argument was that after the strong Christian convictions of many of our recent prime ministers and historically too, whether that's Thatcher, May, Blair or Brown, that doesn't seem to be the case so much anymore. And he quoted Margaret Thatcher from a speech that I didn't know about, 1988, in which she said these words, which I most certainly agreed with. She said that there's little hope for democracy if the hearts of men and women in democratic societies cannot be touched by a call to something greater than themselves. Which the writer, um, David Aronovich, contrasted with today's political discussion, which seemed, as he put it, to be entirely dominated by the question, how will this play with the Red Wall and what he described as the current credo of doing whatever it takes. Now, I found that encouraging and also interesting because if even atheists are pleading for a return to a God-inspired moral framework in politics, well, we know something is happening. And into that context, Jesus' words remind us that there is a moral compass. We've been given one by God. There is right and wrong. There is a basis for governing and for acting as individuals beyond ourselves. One that, as a country, we've always historically drawn upon. But without it, there is no peace in politics or in community or in society. And we end up with instability that sense of sort of ethical confusion and ultimately mistrust. And I'm sure we can recognize that uh, around us in places today. But of course, Jesus' words are not primarily political or societal in focus, although it's important that we apply it on that level too. They are, of course, in their context, spoken primarily to individuals facing crises of faith. And we can only imagine their salience to the many Christians in the Ukraine. There were more Christians in Ukraine than any other country by a long, long way in Europe. Fighting for their lives, evacuated from their homes, and struggling with overwhelming tragedy, anxiety, and grief. And especially as their experience is far closer to the realities of many of those listening disciples to whom Jesus was speaking in our passage. Because in their lives too, 
they would face situations much like the Ukrainians face today, far more like their experience than ours in the West. But that must, though, mean that if Jesus can bring peace and comfort to them, he certainly can to us. Have you recovered your peace since the turmoil and the disruption of the pandemic? Have you recovered your sense of reassurance that everything's going to be okay? Well, if not, Jesus' offer of peace is for you. And we'd love to pray for you after the service that that God-given peace can once again be yours. And I know someone was very grateful for that opportunity after the nine o'clock service this morning. But a more important question for others will be, have you reached that place of reconciliation with your creator, our heavenly father, that ultimately Christian peace is all about? For peace from God, which I think we all want, is fundamentally actually peace with God. It's a state of relationship first, not an emotional feeling. It's about accepting the terms of peace that God offers us and receiving the forgiveness offered to us by Jesus so that barrier between God and us is removed. And if you ask anyone who's recently become a Christian, and hopefully some of you will know some, you'll know that the feelings of peace will then follow pretty quickly behind, if not straight away. But ultimately, it is that reconciliation with our Heavenly Father that kicks it all off. As St. Paul put in one of his letters, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And I'll provide an opportunity for each of us to do that at the end. So that's peace. Let me move on now to the second P, which stands for promise. A promise that beyond that reconciliation, on a macro level, everything is going to be okay. Now, what that doesn't mean, though, is that I can offer you guarantees about your life circumstances any more than I can guarantee long life or an end to hunger, war or suffering, or even West Ham to win the semi-final on Thursday, sadly. However, what I can guarantee is that God's ultimate purposes for human history and the promise of the growth of his kingdom will be fulfilled. Why? Because of what Jesus went on to say in our passage, which is essentially an assurance about the future on the basis of what God has already done in the past. So a reminder what Jesus said to them. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds, we're told, so they could understand the scriptures and told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. Now, let's not lose sight of the significance of all this, simply because we're over-familiar with it. And so, for some of us, if not many of us, it may have lost some of its ability to astound and amaze. For we must remind ourselves that predicting the future 
is not normal human experience, especially not many centuries ahead. So when Jesus reminds us that he fulfilled everything that was written about the Messiah, over 1,500 years of Old Testament history, this really should blow our minds. It's undoubtedly true, too. Most scholars agree that he fulfilled over 300 separate prophecies, including, of course, his death and resurrection, all of which historians can prove were written before the events themselves had occurred. Now, of course, those prophecies have particular resonance for Jewish converts who held those Old Testament scriptures so dear. But what better confirmation could we non-Jews also seek that the events of that first Holy Week that we remembered last Sunday were no historical accident, no mere tragic miscarriage of justice followed by mass hallucinations, as atheist historians are forced to claim, but rather were gloriously orchestrated works of divine providence, planned in advance by God. Now, to base your life on the former is just foolishness, but to base it on the central figure of human history whose life, death, and resurrection was preordained from the very beginning and whose impact has reached every corner of the globe in every generation is entirely rational. Indeed, it's the strongest foundation for hope and purpose in this life that we have. And of course, of course, if God was right about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, well, then he will surely be right in what he says about what the future will bring, which undeniably the first 2000 years of Christian history has borne out for the good news about Jesus really has been preached to all generations and to all nations, as I'm sure we're aware. And the call given has been the repentance for the forgiveness of sins based on the testimony of the disciples, those witnesses to those things. And it's been, if it's been fulfilled so far, then surely we can believe it will go on being so. It may need to be packaged and presented in new ways in each generation, but the good news will continue to go out and people will continue to come to faith, which in the context of today's baptism means that we can pray with confidence that Lydia too will go on to be a witness and a leader to her generation, just as Sophie or Martin or many other members of the family and this church here um, have been to theirs. The gospel will go on because God's power lies behind it. But now to my last and final point, which is that power the final element of that promise, the means by which it can be fulfilled, the power for the disciples to do what they were called to do, and of course, for us, the Holy Spirit, God's presence inside us, guiding, inspiring, and equipping us every step of the way. As Jesus put it, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised but stay in the city till you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, the Holy Spirit is little understood by those outside the church. 
at least not in most cases. But very few Christians, I think, would doubt the reality of the Holy Spirit's presence in their lives. For we know without him, so many things would never occur. We'd never have felt the conviction and absolute compulsion to respond to God in the first place. We would certainly never have been able to make sense of faith and life without the Spirit helping us understand the Bible, discern God speaking to us and prompting us, and without him giving us the desire to live it out, especially when it's hard. And when you add to that the courage to share our faith, the ability to explain it, and that God-given peace that we so often feel, especially in the tough times. Well, we surely do have an abundance of evidence for the reality of the Holy Spirit based even on our personal experience alone. Yet when you add to it each other's testimony, which is so precious to us to share with each other, and add it to the global spread and strength of the Christian church, so often against the odds, even when it's persecuted, well then you surely have all the proof of God's ongoing hand upon human history that anyone could need. Something a quick read of Acts of the Apostles, the story of the early church, will readily confirm. Which means if we want to play our part in our generations, continuing that story, we need the Spirit's fullness and equipping too. So we also have the motivation, the opportunities, the wisdom, the confidence and the courage that we need. And indeed that delight, that wonder and that excitement that was so affected the disciples by the end of that passage that they worshipped him with joy, whatever challenge, whatever persecution they faced. That's all I want to share with you today. We're going to sing a song now, so if the band come up. And I invite you to use this song just to process what we've heard. Process the hugely encouraging truths that in this passage we heard read. Help you process the reality of what God is doing in the world, which speaks of the reality of what he can do in us. And then I'm going to pop up again just to pray for us in the different situations that we're in in response to that. So let's stand first of all and sing this song of hope.